0: Welcome everyone. We are continuing our study of Simha. We are currently in class number 21. Just to give you a little history of this class. We started in the beginning giving a few different reasons. Why Simha is critical in our lives Besides the enjoyment of it There is much more to Simha than just enjoying it And enjoying it is also a great thing But there is even more than that We spent some classes on that We said that Simha Needs to have A person who is grateful hakaratatov. We then went into Chesed, because we said to learn to be Makir Tov, you have to be a giver. And then we went to Berachot. And today we're going to be starting another avenue. If we expect to achieve Simcha in our lives we're going to have to cover a lot of bases. They're not very difficult, but we need to learn about what they are and how to reach them. Obviously, if a person listens to these classes or comes to the classes, they have not achieved simha. That's a reminder. Coming and listening and maybe even enjoying doesn't really do anything for you. Not at least, maybe you'll get a mitzvah for coming to classes. But as far as really achieving this goal that we have together, the things that we're learning have to be exercised. Doesn't mean we're going to achieve them in one day, but we need to make steps to make sure that we're actually following through. Otherwise, we shouldn't be disappointed that nothing happened. I went to 50 classes of Simha and nothing changed. Nothing is going to change. Unless a person takes what we're learning and applies it, nothing is going to change. Today, we start a new avenue in our climb to the heights of Simha. As we mentioned before, the definition of the word simha is a feeling that we humans have it obviously feels good it gives us strength and if we expect to have this simha in our lives we have to identify It's location. Where where does it come from? Because if I don't know where something is coming from, it's going to be difficult to figure out how to get it. And again, as I mentioned before, on this subject of simha, when we speak about simha, we don't talk about moments of happiness in life. Moments of pleasure. Because all of us, have a way of finding moments of pleasure that's not so hard when we speak about simha we speak about continuous we speak about full day full weeks full months a full year and a lifetime of simha something uninterrupted which is for most of humanity's not even on the radar what does that mean to be sameya all the time that's, that's asking the impossible. Humans can't be Samaya all the time. Well, we're going to learn that you can. But it could be that most of us don't even know what the word means. Again, we've experienced pleasure, but the word simha is coming to describe something that's beyond pleasure. A pleasure you can have. You can eat, you can drink, you can have all types of physical pleasures in this world. They're enjoyable, they're usually short-lasting, and then, till you get hungry again, then you get to eat again, and once in a while you have a different type of pleasure, or you go, you go on a vacation type of pleasure, or relaxation pleasure. We're not talking about those. The reason why we're not talking about them is not because they're bad. That's just not simha. those things can't keep you going. You can only eat a few times a day. That's it. And the time that you eat is short. And then what? Any physical pleasure expires. Expires in a short time. So if we don't figure out how to have every other time in life to have simha, we're going to have these sporadic moments of simha, which unfortunately for many people it's all they look forward to. They have a few times a day. That's enough. But we have so much more to look forward to. We just have to realize where it is. So simha is not found actually in anything physical. Physical you have pleasures. You can enjoy things. And sometimes we mistaken pleasures for simha. Pleasures are enjoyable. But they're not simha simha originates in the human soul simha is not in your hands it's not in your legs it's not in your mouth simha it doesn't have a physical location in fact many times we experience simha things that are against the physical pleasures for example i can go and give someone my time, which is gonna cost me energy, and yet I can feel good about that. I can write someone a very big check that I worked months to be able to make that money, and somehow I feel good, but I just lost money. When was the last time someone lost money and felt good about it? Why am I feeling good? I didn't eat anything. I didn't gain more ability to enjoy more physical pleasures. In fact, if anything, I lost. I lost my time, I lost my money. So, the feelings of simha have nothing to do with physical. What part of my physical body is excited because I gave someone food? What part of my physical body is so happy that I made my mother happy? Where did that come from? What did my body get? My body got nothing. In fact, my body gave Simha is located nowhere on the physical body. You will not find it in a sonogram. It's not there. You look for it. Where is it? It's not there. Simha is coming from a neshama that we humans have. A neshama that is very special and very beautiful. And somehow the neshama produces this great feeling of simha. Now that we know where the simha comes from, so we have to know how to bring it out. Okay, so how do you bring, how do you make my neshama have simha? How do you, how do you, how do you activate it? Where is the button? To say, okay, I'm ready. Boom. Press it. I want to have simha. So, a little disappointing is the pasuk that Shlomo HaMelech says in Kohelet. He says, That the human soul doesn't get full, which means it's always hungry. It's not satisfied. When you read that pasuk, you say, this is an impossible endeavor, because if we're dealing with the human soul, and Shilamu HaMelech is saying, it doesn't get satisfied, so how am I getting simha? If I can't satisfy my neshama, then I can't find simha. But the Midrash explains on this pasuk, a very well-known Midrash, we've probably mentioned it a few times in these classes, about a king who had a daughter, and was looking for a shiduch to find her a hatan. And somebody suggested to the king a very, very simple farmer who lived out of the city, a very simple man, a very good man, but a very simple man. And somebody came to this farmer and told him, listen, the king is interested in you for a hatan. He says, well, it's very exciting. He says, well, before they actually make the deal, he's going to come with the kala to visit your home or your shack and uh, just wanted to give you a heads up they're coming in a few weeks so if you want to prepare yourself it's probably a good idea this this farmer is very excited he could be the prince he could be the son law of the king he never even dreamed of such a possibility and he has to make a great impression he looks around his shack he sees it's all broken down old, he looks at this food it's all rotten and old and dirty and everything is just not appetizing, and he's thinking there's no way this young lady is going to come to this shack and be impressed by such a terrible out, such a terrible look he says he, says he decides that in the next two weeks he's taking off And all he's going to do is work on his shack. He's going to make that shack something magnificent. It's not what he's used to, but he's going to upgrade it. He goes and he cleans everything. He paints everything. Furniture that's broken, he fixes. For the first time in his life, he goes and he buys all fresh fruits. He buys everything, everything he bakes, bread, everything. He's looking around. It's the night before that this woman is coming to see his shack. He looks around and he says, this is unbelievable. I can't imagine how anyone wouldn't be impressed. Look at this. Clean, new, fresh, beautiful, awesome. He's so confident. He says, I have this in the bag. It's easy. I'm going to wow her off her feet. And sure enough, she comes with her father. And as she looks around, thank you. And as she looks around, she starts to cry. And she's not crying, not tears of happiness either. She's looking around. She cannot believe her eyes. What is this? Could this be the person I'm going to live with? And this guy is looking at her. And he just can't understand. He doesn't understand. What could she possibly be crying about? What is it that she would be missing in this shack? I mean, look. Look at the fresh fruit. Look at the bread. Look at this. It's a clean place. What What could be missing? And he's all frustrated, trying to figure out what this girl could want more than this. He's never seen anything like this. And as he's sitting there bewildered, somebody taps on the shoulder. says, I see, you look a little confused. He says, "I am. What's going on? Why is she crying?" It's great. Look at this place. He says, "Do you know where she comes from?" I, said, I know she's the daughter of the king. He says, "Do you know where she lives?" I said, Not really. I've never been there. He says, "She comes from the palace." He says, "What's a palace?" He says, "The palace is like this building that's made of gold and silver and all precious stones." He says they have chefs in the palace, twenty-four-seven. They have always new things that are being produced. Everything is sparkly Everything is gorgeous. Everything is top. He says, "What do you think you're going to be able to provide this girl?" And she's going to say, "Oh wow, this is great." When someone comes from the palace, when someone comes, when, when someone comes from the palace. When someone comes from the palace, it's going to be very difficult to excite them when you have a shack. The Midrash is coming to explain this Pasuk so that we shouldn't get depressed. When Shlomo Melech says your soul and my soul not able to be satisfied the Midrash is explaining to us that our neshama comes from a very high place and has a very high standard of what it's satisfied with. And me and you, we live in a physical world like the farmer, and we want to excite our neshama because we feel the hunger. We feel there's something there that we need to fill. So we say, okay, let's do it. Let's go for dinner. That's going to do it. And the Nishama says, I'm not doing it for me. Or maybe if I buy a bigger house, that's not going to do it for me. Or maybe if I do here, I do it. No matter what we give, our Nishama in the physical sense, the Nishama is laughing or crying and saying, are you kidding? You think this is going to excite me? You think... Having this food is going to make me excited? You think buying that is going to make me happy? You think because you have this wardrobe it's going to make me happy? And our neshama continues to starve. And we continuously feel the starvation and we try to find how we can make her excited. And we keep looking for physical things. That's all we know. We don't know anything else. And we keep coming up short. That's the story of humanity. It's a group of people that have a hunger inside of them and they continuously try to find how to fill it. But they find, like Shlomo says, Hanefesh loti It's not happening. I mean, again, we have momentary pleasures. We're not going to take that away from the farmer. But to have simha all, all the time, it's not happening. So then if the physical pleasures and the physical world don't excite the neshama, and don't bring that simha that we're looking for, and again, I know we've all felt simha. Like I mentioned before, it's not the dinner that you had. That's not what I'm referring to. The simha is the great feeling that you had when you did something special for someone. Or you had a great tefillah once and it was like an out-of-world experience. Or you gave something to someone who you owe something to, like your father, and you surprised them and you saw the smile on their face and you're like, you're glowing. You think, that That's what I'm referring to. How do we get that simha? So the answer is that when the neshama that we have experiences what a person's purpose in this world is, when the neshama sees me, my neshama, if it sees me involved in my takhlit, in my purpose, my neshama lights up. I don't have to reach my purpose. As long as I'm working towards my purpose, my neshama says, this is great I love it. I love that feeling. So obviously it's important that we're going to learn about simha to know what is the purpose that our nishama is going to be excited about now you might say but we spoke about being Sama 24 hours a day seven days a week can I be involved in my purpose every second? So the truth is, once we realize what that purpose is, we will see that everything we do in life will have something to do with that purpose. That's what the Rambam <laughs> writes. The writes, in Shepunat Parakim, he writes that there is a purpose to life. And he says a great person, always knows what that purpose is. And no matter what they do in their life, physical, spiritual, whether it's for themselves or for others, everything checks out that has something to do with that purpose. And before they do it, they ask, okay, is this going to advance my purpose? Or is it going to take me backwards? So actually, all of life, like it says that Imam writes, he quotes the Mishnah and Perkei Avot, Means everything that you do, everything, Yihiyu everything that I do should have a higher purpose, should be. L'shem but, but, but don't I eat? And don't I sleep? And don't I relax? And don't I? Of course you do. And that's all part of your purpose. If you have a goal, then everything that you do can be attuned to that purpose. So therefore, the greatest gift. That we can give ourselves and the greatest gift we can give our children. Very often it's good to speak about giving our children. Because when it comes to ourselves, we sell ourselves short a lot. Because we have all different types of issues with ourselves. But our children is easier. The greatest gift you can give your child, your son, your daughter, is to give them the tools to be Sameach all the time. There's nothing more that you can give them. Of course you need to cook for them and buy them clothing. And take them on a break once in a while and put them in school. But the greatest gift you can give a human being is to give him the tool to be Sameach all the time. There is nothing more important and more valuable and more happy and more pleasurable. So Simcha is going to come from our Neshama and our Neshama is going to be activated and say awesome only when it sees the person involved in their purpose. Now those are a lot of, there's a few words, but they have a lot in them. And it's not going to take one class to cover it. But that's basically the summary. When our neshama sees we're involved in our purpose and we're getting there, there's a tingle, there's a great feeling that our neshama has. In fact, the word simha, The word simha, which we know as we describe is happiness, for lack of a better word. The root of that word simha is shin mem. Shin mem in Hebrew spells sham. Sham means over there. When I have an over there and I'm trying to get over there, I don't have to get there this moment. But so long as I have a sham, and I am on my way to the sham I am going to be in a state of simha very important to know what the sham is before we know what the purpose of our life is believe it or not there has to be another foundation that we build it should be a simple class let's go start right away what's the purpose of life we're not going there And I warn you this class is not one of those classes that you know walk out excited you know there are some classes that are given with emotion it's about love and close and connection and, and those are very important classes and we need to have emotion but sometimes Classes are given on an intellectual level. When you walk out, you don't necessarily feel like you're flying because it's only your mind that's activated, not your heart. But you have to be careful from the emotional classes that come before the the mind. The Torah warns us. Veyadata hayom Veyadata means you must first know you must use your brain and then you could bring your heart into it. If you mix the order and you put your heart in front of your brain, then your brain is going to protect your emotions, which may not be so good. For example, I'll give you a very simple example. A person who's going out with somebody. that let's say we all agree on all levels is a disaster. On every level. Social, spiritual, involved in any, ev- any and every bad thing imaginable. But we can all agree this person is a disaster. And we have this young lady that's dating the person. So we sit her down. And she knows that we love her. And we start going through all the reasons why this should not happen. You're going to have a very difficult life. Do you agree he does this? Yes, I know, I know, it's very bad. And this? Yes, 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 yes. yes. And you'll sit there for an hour, and I've I've had these experiences, by the way, talking from experience, not from books. And after you sit down for two hours and you say, okay. So it's a simple. So far we had like 25 things on the list and the guy is over for 25. And then you'll walk out of the room and she'll say something like, Rabbi, I know, I know. But I, I just love him. I can't. So what just happened? Now, listen to this. If I would have met with that girl before she ever dated him, and I told her, by the way, you're about to date someone who has zero, 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 zero. This would never have happened. But because your emotion was already connected, so now the brain not only doesn't help, the, plane, the brain becomes the enemy. Because the brain, now everything I say, she has in her way, in her mind, yeah, but I know, but... And somehow the brain becomes... The protector of the emotion. So a person could live a very fake life based on their emotion getting connected to something that's not even good or not even right. You could be connected, for example, to any religion emotionally. But you first have to verify the truth. If you start emotion and then go for the truth, it's going to be very difficult because now Since you're connected emotionally, your brain is going to want to protect your emotions. So they're trying to figure out every single way of how, no, it must be like this or it can't be. Hashem warns us, don't go into life like that. When you make important decisions in your marriage, in your life mission, in anything that you do, first, educate yourself. First, know what's good. First, know what's not good. And then... Of course you need the emotion. But the emotion has to come after the brain, not vice versa. So this class today is a, is a class where we need to be informing our intellect. And if you walk out of here and say, but I'm not flying today. Last week I was flying. I was making berachot. I was jumping to Hashem. I had all types of bitah. That's nice. But there's also room in life for intellectual knowledge of truth. And then you could build your emotion on it. So today is one of those classes. Because I just asked you a question. So what then is the purpose that the Nishama will say, wow, this is great. Oh, you're going towards that goal? I love that. So I'm telling you today that before we even look for the purpose, unfortunately for us humans, we have to start way at the bottom. And we have to first believe that there is a purpose. One more time. Before we actually look for the purpose, we first have to know that there is a purpose. That there has to be a purpose. Meaning if I asked you a question about somebody who did something, something silly, And I said, by the way, what was their purpose in that? Now, I'm not going to spend my time trying to figure out what their purpose was. They don't have a purpose. They do a lot of senseless things. Imagine a person gets a new job. A young man gets a new job by this big company. And he's directly working for the boss of the company. And the first day on the job, he comes in. And the boss hands him... A round-trip ticket to China. 30 days. Flight is tomorrow morning. Hands him the tickets, doesn't give him any papers, doesn't tell him anything. It's a little strange. Takes the ticket, he gets on the airplane, lands in China, has no idea what he's doing there. But he knows he's hungry. So he goes to eat. And after he eats, he's a little tired. He goes for a little nap. He wakes up from the nap. He feels like he's bored. He sees people playing music. He sits down to enjoy the concert. After that, he gets hungry again. He eats again. And then he goes to sleep. The next morning, same story. He's there for two weeks. He's enjoying all the games, enjoying the music, going here, eating that, relaxing. Somebody sees him in China two weeks later. He says, how are you doing over here? He says, great. He says, by the way, um, like, what have you accomplished? What have you been doing? He says, is that the truth, I've just, you know, I've been eating a lot. It's very good food over here. And uh, the music is out of great. We have great musicians in this town. And, um, you know, they come to very comfortable hotels here. And I'm uh, really just enjoying myself. He says, but uh, you're here for two weeks. He says, how long are you here for? He said, I'm here total a month. He said, well, what are you supposed to be doing? He says, I tell you the truth. I don't know. It's very weird. He asked, I have no idea. (laughs) He says, you don't know why you're here. He says, it's very interesting. He asked, but the guy gave me a ticket. I got a job. He didn't tell me. So he tells him, but don't you think that he probably sent you for a reason? Don't you think someone sent you thousands of miles away for a month because he wants you to do something maybe there are things along the way that you missed maybe he wants to see what kind of employee you are are you thinking about that? so the truth is I'm thinking to myself if I was that person would I work for the next two weeks? try to work at least? or would I continue two weeks of vacation? what would I do? so I'll be honest I think that's what I would do I wouldn't necessarily work. I would first check on my boss and to see what kind of guy he is. Let's say I did research on this guy and I see the guy is a total nutcase. He's crazy. The guy is not. People don't understand what he does, why he does it. Like there are people living in Australia for the last 35 years. No one knows why they're there. He sent them there. They still don't know why. He just does a lot of silly things. He's not mesudar, he's not orderly, he's not smart, he doesn't do things with plans, he does things that nobody could figure out. If that's what I got back, next two weeks, I'm not going to do anything. I'll continue whatever I was doing. But if the word came back after I checked into this man, that's my boss, that my future is dependent on him, and I checked into him and I saw, wow, this guy is brilliant. Not only is brilliant, he's very calculated. Everything he does is with thought. He has everything worked out. Every step connects to another step. But he doesn't do anything without real goals and plans. If that's what comes back, now I'm saying, okay, I gotta figure this out. So that's why I say before we look to find what the purpose is, we first have to be convinced that there is a purpose. It cannot be that there is no purpose but how do I know that? Maybe there's no purpose so the first thing that we have to do is to study the creator who made us and we have to be able to see through his creations what is he all about we're not going to get to see him privately but we'll see him so clearly that it's almost like we're meeting him but you have to see what he built and when we look around the world for example Abraham Avinu at a young age he understood from the world and its creations that there's a creator to this world that's one of the things he understood he understood much more How did Avraham know there's a creator to this world? How did Avraham know that this creator has a purpose in life? And the truth is, anywhere you look in the world, you see seder. Seder means something that is orderly. Orderly means it's made with sechel and then it connects to other things, which connect to other things, and everything is connected, and everything is working together to produce some common result. For example, if a person would walk into an empty desert, and they would see 10 stones on the floor, and on top of the 10, they would see nine, and on top of the nine, they would see eight, and then seven, and six, all the way to one, and they see this pyramid, They would say, oh, someone was here. Someone made that. Because things that are mesudar, things that are orderly, they don't happen by themselves. Things that are orderly have a mesadir. A person sees a door, even the simplest door, with the knob, just at the height that humans need. And with the hole just in the right place. And a keyhole just for the key that fits. And... Everything on that door, the color, the glass in the middle, that's an unbelievable piece of seder. Someone took a picture in their mind and they built it according to what's needed. Mesudar, when something is mesudar, that means there's a mesader. And when you you see things that are orderly, It's got to open your mind. You got to realize that these things don't just happen. They can't just happen. I'll give you a simple example. I've used this example in many, many different places. If you've heard it before, I apologize. But it's just very simple type of information. You know, when my mind sees something, my mind automatically knows is this something that's for sure or for sure not? Or maybe? In my mind, when I see something, or I hear something better yet, my mind measures and says, did that really happen? I could either say, no way. I could say, for sure. Or I could say, maybe. What does my mind use to determine information that if I tell you right now, you know, right now there's thirty feet of snow outside, your mind will say, No, that doesn't happen. Now you're not outside, it could be, that there is. But your mind knows that doesn't happen. And if I tell you something else, you might say, Okay, maybe, maybe it's pouring outside. What is it that our mind uses to determine if information is correct, maybe or for sure not? So the answer is it uses odds. Odds. Odds means the different chances that there are that this thing could actually happen. So for example, give you a simple example. You have cards on a table. Cards numbered 1 through 15. 15 cards. Each one has a number. 1, 2, 3. And they're all in order. Now if you would throw up these cards in the air. It's only 15 cards. And then they would land. What are the chances, what are the odds that they will land in order? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 to 15. So I've asked this question to many intelligent people. The dumbest answer I've ever received is that the chances are 15 to 1. The, the chances basically are the number of possibilities that these cards could lend. So whatever number of possibilities these cards could lend, one of them will be the possibility of one through 15. So the worst answer, if you're thinking about this answer, I apologize if I called you dumb, but if you're thinking it's one into 15, so that is a really bad answer. You forgive me? You should really start. Now, I would say one of the most um, popular answers is 225, 225. I mean there are 225 possibilities of these cards, how they could land. They could land one, two, three, four, one, three, four, two, one, four, three, two, one, all that. They could land 225 different numbers, possibilities. Of course, one of them will be one through 15, which means the odds will be one in 225. Not a great, it's less than half a percent, but that's, that's your odds. So if you see cards on the table, one through 15 right in front of you, and somebody asks you, do you think they just got there? They just happened to fall like that? Or you think someone put them? it, I don't know, not sure, right? Could be, could be that they fell that way, right? Mean, it's, it's a half a percent. But in reality, the 225 number is almost as bad as the 15 number. I wouldn't say you have to go back to school for that one. But it's also pretty pathetic. Because the real number of chances, the real number of combination in 15 cards is so mind-boggling that you'll never in your life imagine, even if I'm going to tell it to you, you're going to say it's impossible. That this man is lying. He doesn't know what he's talking about. It can't be. Because I'm not going to tell you a number like one in a thousand. And I'm not going to tell you like a thousand, ten thousand. I'm not going to say a hundred thousand. I'm not even going to tell you a million. Imagine a million different combinations and only 15 cards. Come on, it's a lot. And it's not going to be even ten million. And guess what? It's not going to be even one billion. The number of possibilities in 15 cards is 1,307,000,000,000. Say that again. 1,307,000,000,000. That's how many combination in 15 cards. I don't know. I, I can't understand it. I really can't understand it. I can't even wrap my head around it. I don't know what that means. How, how could there be 15 cards? Co- how many ways could you do it? Do you know how big this number is? This number, one day I wanted to understand. Sometimes numbers are so big, you can't understand them. I wanted to understand this number. So I thought to myself, if I sat in a room by myself, 24 hours a day, for seven days a week, and every minute, I would throw the cards up, and I would let them land, count them, and do it again. So, one every minute. Right? So, how long would it take me to do it one trillion times? Like how many days do I have to live? How many years? So I'll tell you. In a, in a year, there are 525,600 minutes. Okay, in one year, 525,600 minutes. If I lived 100 years, right, and I did 24-7, I didn't sleep, I didn't eat, 24-7, no. that's all I do. For a hundred years, I've done this 52 million times. Now, 52 million times, hasn't even scratched a zero after the 307. It didn't do anything. I would have to live millions of years to be able to throw the cards up enough times. Again, I'm saying this to you, and you're probably thinking, come on, what's, what's he saying? I'm telling you a fact. I'm not telling you, I mean, this is not a, a spiritual, uh, uh, you know, piece of information. It's a fact. It's a mathematical fact. Even 15 cards on a table, one through 15, wow, they happen together. Now, by the way, let's say one of my friends decided this is a great project. I want to join you. I want to be your habuta. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to get my own cards. Your own cards, and we're gonna throw them together. Every minute we got go, cool. what, well, all day long? What are the chances that we will get one through fifteen at the same time? That he and I will both get one through fifteen? Okay, it's a trillion times a trillion. It's impossible number. And these are not very complex things. A simple door right there is way more complex than fifteen cards. All the little pieces that came together to make that door. Much more complex to write one word from from a from a from from all different letters to create a sentence by it's impossible. So when you see Seder, even the simplest Seder, the simplest fifteen cards being very simple, you have no idea just how complex it is. To make that happen, even once, when my mind hears something, my mind automatically takes it. Okay, come these things don't happen; it can't be. Or they could say, for sure, happened. Now, Abraham Avinu, looking at this world, so how did Abraham know there's a purpose to this world? Because he saw everything that Hashem made had a purpose, and not only it had a purpose it connected to another purpose, and another pur- and all of a sudden you see a world that's all intertwined. We'll give you a few examples. Not, not very difficult examples, but some simple ones that I think all of us can appreciate. Let's look, for example, at the peels of fruits, whether it's an orange or it's an apple. Any peel of any fruit. So you'll notice, so the peel on the fruit, for most people it's annoying. It's like you have to go and cut it. And sometimes you cut your finger because of that. But we have no idea what this peel is doing for us and the seder there is in this peel. For example, number one, the peel is airtight. The minute you peel a fruit, it starts to turn colors. It starts to get old. The air comes in and starts to ruin it. But it could stay with the peel for months. Nothing will happen to it. Because the peel is not just a cover. It's airtight. That doesn't allow any air to come in and ruin the fruit. Besides that, the peel, it doesn't allow water to go into the fruit. You know what happens to things that you put them in water? They get destroyed. How come when you put fruit in water, nothing happens to it? How come the fruit's sitting on a tree and it's got months of rain and nothing happens to it? The answer is that inside the peel of the fruits, there's something like oil. And oil, as we know, there's one thing in the world that repels water. It's called oil. So luckily for us fruit eaters, that we have something to protect our fruit for months until we're ready to eat it. That oil comes in and protects the apple or the orange from being destroyed by the water. Besides that, something unbelievable about the peels of the fruits that we eat. You know, if a Martian would come visit you, your cousin from Mars says, I want to come visit you for a few days. And of course you say, come on. And he would tell you, so you're a citizen of this world? You know what's going on there? Yeah, I've been here for 50 years. I got it. Just come down. I'll show you everything there is. We've got some amazing some amazing things down here. And he comes in and you're ready to show him all the new technology. And you're ready to get out your phone and take out all the different things that are going on. And then he says, by the way, well, uh, what is that? What is that item I see? It's on the tree. He said, Oh, that's a fruit. You eat that fruit. And he's about to eat it. He comes to your house, he's ready to eat the banana. You tell him, Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Why not? He told me it's fruit. I know, but it's not ready yet. Okay, fine. Next day he wakes up, you tell him, okay, now you can eat. It's ready. He said, hey cousin, how'd you know that? How did you know? What are you a nubby? How did you know? That the banana is ready to eat today. He don't, like, don't know. He says yesterday it was green. So when it's green, you know not to eat it. But when it turns yellow, then you know now you can eat it. Guys, what? <coughs> the peels talk to you in this world. They communicate with you. When they're ready, they tell you come. They turn red and orange and blue and all these exciting colors for you to grab them. And when they're not ready, they're green. By the way, green, it's not just a random color. Green is the the color of the trees. It's camouflage in the tree. Don't eat me yet. I'm not ready yet. The peel tells you when you can bite into the fruit that you're eating. When it's not ready, you'll know. You don't have to go and sink your teeth and disrupt your day for something that isn't good. The peel actually communicates with you. Whoever made the peel obviously knows that the one watching it knows colors and understands how to decipher this color or that color. It's tremendous seder in the peel. Besides that, the peel is attractive. Part of the pleasure of food is the look of the food. The inside of the fruits, not necessarily the most attractive, but on the outside, it gives you great pleasure. The peel does by attracting you to the fruit that you're going to eat. Besides that, most of the smell that's in fruit is in the peel. smells good, tastes good, gives you extra pleasures. besides that you have fruits hanging on the trees they have a little stem what's amazing is that this little stem is so powerful that during the rainy and windy season it holds on tight to this apple or to that orange that it doesn't fall but yet when it's time and it's ripe it lets go of its grip. And with a little movement, it comes down. But besides that, it's also the channel, it's the tunnel, where all the water and nutrients come into the fruit from the tree and its roots. The banana peel that we eat, we don't eat the peel. But when it's green, it's versatile. When it's green, it's hard to break off each other. And when it's green, it's very hard to peel; just you can't get it. But when it's ready to eat, it just makes it—it's it just softens up. Wow! How did that happen? What, who who made this seder? How did how did the banana know that you're supposed to turn colors, soften yourself for the people to eat you? You open an apple or an orange, and you see something amazing—you see liquid that is juice, basically, open an orange, it's juice. It's orange juice. But yet when you cut it, no juice falls out. How did that happen? How did all the juice come together and it's solid? Nothing is spilling out. If you ever looked at an orange and you saw how many little pockets of liquid there are, and you went to a factory in China and say, could you make me one orange? I want someone to come and sew all these little packets, put a little liquid in there and sew it. It would cost thousands of dollars for one orange. All the little packets, all that is made so that the eater can enjoy it as a food or if you so wish, you want a drink, look at that. You squeeze it, it's orange juice. It's unbelievable. What? Tremendous seder went into making that orange. <clears throat> you open up a watermelon. Had the watermelon know that the inside is supposed to be red, but when you get close to the walls, it turns into a color that you don't want to eat. How does it know that the good part is supposed to be attractive while the part's gonna give you a stomachache? Is not going to be attractive, so you should stay away from it. How about when you get to the seeds of the watermelon? The seeds of the watermelon, the watermelon has no oil inside. There's no oil in the watermelon. Yet, when you try to grab the seeds of the watermelon, they just slip out of your hand. It's like they're oily, they're slippery. You try to grab them, today they sell water, they sell seedless watermelons. People never even saw watermelons. So I apologize for the new generation, but anybody who has seen the old watermelons, okay, they have seeds, they have tons of seeds, and you try to grab them, and you go like this, and all of a sudden they slip out of your hand, and you go and you go like this, up. and they keep going, they keep slipping. You try to grab one, it, it slips. What's going on with that? Why doesn't the watermelon slip from you when you try to eat it? How come the seeds are slipping out of your hands? Ah, the manufacturer understood that this is not made for real consumption. This is for the next generation of watermelons. This needs to go back in the ground. So therefore he made it. Imagine you buy a box of cereal. And after you finish the box, you look in the bottom, you see a coupon. Go buy, one more box for free. What a Baal Chesed this factory is. You, You eat a watermelon, you finish, the manufacturer says, here, have another one. Not just one. Have many more like this one. The seed is the next future of watermelons and oranges and apples. That's why you can't grab them. Because they're meant to be safe for the next generation of watermelons. Now, in truth, if you're really stubborn and you're an akshan, you could get the watermelon seeds. The proof is, people eat watermelon seeds. If you really wanted it, you grab them, you tell them, I'll show you who's boss, put your hand in, I'm going to grab you, dry them up, and I'm going to eat you. So the truth is, you could do that with watermelons. But notice something amazing. That as the seeds of a, of a fruit get less it becomes more difficult to actually reach them. The seeds of the watermelon are by the hundreds. You lose 250, no problem, you only need one. But when it comes to an apple, it's much more guarded. The seeds are much more guarded. It's hard to bite into them, they're bitter, they have this certain consistency that is very hard to actually pull and then you get to fruits that have only one seed. Any fruit that you see that has one seed. It's like Fort Knox. You cannot get in. Nectarine. Plum. Peach. Avocado. You can't get in. You'll break your teeth and you will not get in. You will not get Because there's only one. And when there's only one, the manufacturer is very careful. To make sure that this one is extra protection. Wow. How did the watermelon know to produce so many and let you have? Because it knows it has many more. And the avocado has got such a protection. Seder. Everywhere you turn. Everywhere you look. Wow. How did that happen? Oh, wow. How did you think of that? Everything is Mesudar. And before a tree is able to grow fruit, it needs seeds to grow. Just like a human is made from seed, so fruits also are made from seeds. Where are these seeds? So these seeds are in the flowers, the beautiful flowers that grow on the tree, that besides their nice look and smell, they're also going to be the next generation of fruits. Now, how does that work? So, the way it works is on in each flower, there are seeds called pollen. But what's interesting is that the seeds of one flower can never produce a fruit right then and there. The only way seeds can produce fruits they have to be migrated, they have to move, someone has to take them, pick them up, and they have to put them in another flower, just like that one, and then together, that mixture will be able to produce fruits. Now you're talking about, trillions is not the number, of who's doing all this? Who is going to go now and take from every flower on the tree and start mixing and start planting. Who's doing that? So the, the creator of the world found, he, or oh, he hired maybe, a shipping company called the bees. The bees, They now what's interesting about the bees is that they hired help and they don't even know it. We're eating today fruits primarily because of them and they have no clue. They're working for you but they don't even know it. So why would they work for you if they don't know it? So here's what happens. The bees have no interest in the pollen, and they have no interest in your fruits. Bees need to live, and for them to live, they need to have something sweet, which is nectar. Now luckily, just so happens that there is also nectar in the flower right next to the pollen. Me na Unbelievable. Now, and luckily, the bees have a hairy body. So when they go, they're going to eat. That's what they're going to do. When they go to eat from their nectar, guess what they're going to be powdered with? Pollen. And it takes them some time to get the food, because they're not so big, they can't just grab it and go. They need some time. So while they're flying around over there, they're moving their wings, they're getting all powdered from the pollen. Now, luckily, there isn't enough nectar in one flower for them. They need more, because they need enough nectar to produce honey. That's going to last them for 10 months. So they have to go and continue to another flower. But they have to go to a flower that's similar to the one that they went to, because if they go to a different flower, then they won't produce the desired results of quality honey. So then they go to another flower to eat more. But when they go to the next flower, oh, just so happens that the pollen that was powdered on them from the first flower now ends up in the second flower. Now they get more here and they keep going. The bees of the world are giving us fruits and they don't even know it. Now, by the way, you should know that the bees are going to have a very hard time with this nectar. Because I don't know if you've ever seen a bee, but they don't have hands. They can't grab things. So how in the world do they grab nectar and take it with them? I mean, they can't eat it right then and there because they need to save some for the winter. And they got to give their children. Otherwise, the whole bee population is going to be wiped out. So how in the world do they move the nectar from one place to another. They have no hands. They have no bags. So the creator of the world, he made a pouch on the body of the bee. There's a pouch that when it goes to fill up nectar, it puts it in the pouch. And it keeps putting it in the pouch. But guess what? Even with nectar in the pouch, It has no use. Because you know what happens to nectar if you leave it out? It dries out. Put water, put juice out for a few minutes. It dries out. It evaporates. But it needs this nectar to live. So luckily for the bee, there's a factory inside the bee. A factory that we don't have. A factory that's able to produce material, chemicals, that when they put it inside the pouch, It turns nectar into honey that lasts, as you know, for years and years on. This way the bee has what to eat from her and her children till the next time it's going to find nectar in the world. It's going to take a long time. But guess what? Even that's really not enough because where is it going to store its honey? You know, the bee is not very big and doesn't have... Any 40 by 100 lot that's going to put it in stuff. Where where in the world is it going to put the honey? Where does it go? So the creator of the world gave the bee another factory, an unbelievable factory, a powerful factory that produces wax. And it produces wax in such a way that it's able to manufacture a storage for the honey that it produced. And it could store it away. And it could go get more honey to keep storing for the year and for her children. This wax is clean and it's so mesudar. You know, it, the, the bees only make hexagon shapes. I don't know if you know that. Six. They only make hexagon shapes. It's interesting. Now, scientifically, If you want to get the maximum out of your footage, you make the area into a hexagon shape. Not a circle, not a square, not a triangle. The maximum usage of an area is when it has a hexagon. And every bee in the world, they never messed up, every bee in the world just so happened makes that shape to store its food. But guess what? Even with all that, it's worthless for the bee. Because you know who likes sweet things? All the wild animals in the forest where the bee shares its home. How in the world is this little bee going to stand up to a bear or to these big animals that want very much its honey? So Hashem gave the bee a sword. He has a sword. He stands there and one guy comes, he puts his sword in, and not only is a sword, he has poison, and he burns him to make sure he watches himself, not to come close to the bees. They command respect, that they're not going to be taken so lightly by the animals around them. Now what you see here, the reason why I brought this more than other things, is very simple. Because you see here, each thing is amazing, but you also see that they all work together. Think about it. If there's no sword, just take away swords from bees. Wouldn't you like that? Of course, we don't like getting stung. So if you would take swords away from bees, so what would happen? They would get beat up and they would lose their honey. If they would lose their honey, there are no bees. If there are no bees, there are no fruits. No fruits, the world is a different place. If they, have, if, they, if they can't make honey, then they're not going to have any food to eat. If they have no sack, they can't take it anywhere. Everything is connected. Every part of this is connected. And there's so much more, but this is just one example of how seder plays into seder and into more seder. It's a world that is mesudar. One of the most amazing things that your alien cousin will ask you, When he tells you, oh, by the way, on the highway I saw these big giant, I don't know, things coming out of the ground. I said, "What? What was that? What the poles? No, not the poles. I know, oh the trees. Oh yeah, oh, those are nothing. Come on, let has gone. Let me show you the real nothing. What is that? where did they come from? What is it? What is it? What come from? He said, cousin, let see. me show you. It's very simple." Uh, No big deal. You're making it a big deal. See this seed over here? See this apple seed? See this orange seed? What? Take it. Put it in the dirt. Come back in a few years and you get 500 tons of wood. The alien says, what? What? Again? You put it in the ground, the seed. He opens the seed, cuts it up, Takes a knife, cuts the seed. Any wood in the seed? No wood in the seed. Where's the wood coming from? Is there any wood in the sun? No. There's no wood in the water. Where is the wood? Is there any wood underground? No. In fact, if you planted something, imagine you, you weighed the dirt underground. It was, let's say, a thousand tons. And you got a thousand ton tree of wood. How much dirt you have on the bottom? It remains a thousand tons. Nothing changes. Where did the wood come from? It's a good question. There's a lot of good questions. Making wood from water and an orange seed is like building the Empire State Building with paper clips and rubber bands. That's what it looks like. Just imagine we built the Empire State Building and the guy tells you, so uh, what was the material that you had to buy? Oh, it was very easy. Paper clips, rubber bands. Here's some paper that we used. Look what we got over here making wood is is much more complicated than that when you look around the world you see endless cedar. think about the leaves that grow on trees this is this is really it's it's mind-boggling you think about it and you say this can't be how see you have leaves on the tree These leaves, by the way, have water that come from the bottom of the tree all the way up to the leaves of the tree. How that happens, I don't know, because usually gravity brings things down. How water goes against gravity, I don't know, but that's what happens. Water ends up in the leaves. Now, in the leaves, there's something called chlorophyll. Now, that might not be so exciting for you. Okay, great. Let that be chlorophyll. Baruch Hashem. What is this chlorophyll? So what happens is, very interesting, that, the, that the, the, the sun, when it beams its light on the leaves outside, so it makes the chlorophyll get, has, has some sort of reaction. And that reaction, the chlorophyll, what it does, it takes water What is water? We all know. H2O, two hydrogens and one oxygen. Oxygen. So what, look what happens. The sun beams on your leaves, the leaves have the chlorophyll, which has a chemical reaction and it splits the water that's sitting in the leaves. It splits the oxygen from the hydrogen and the oxygen is let go from the pores of the leaves. And guess who's lucky enough? To be able to use such oxygen. It's our lives. All animals and humans need oxygen. The oxygen comes from there. Now, if you ask, what about the, what about the hydrogen? H2O, what happened to the hydrogen? Okay, we got rid of the oxygen. What's the purpose of the, hy- the hydrogen? Something unbelievable happens. If you mix hydrogen which, with carbon dioxide, it makes sugar. Sugar gives energy to the tree to grow. The question is, where is the tree going to find carbon dioxide? Look how interesting. The human who needs the oxygen, so he breathes in oxygen. And after he breathes oxygen, he lets go of waste. Guess what that waste is? just so happens that waste is carbon dioxide. That waste goes back into the leaves, Again, chemical reaction brings them together and helps the tree grow. Could you imagine? Each we're both connected. Without humans, there are no trees, and without trees, there are no humans. We're together. We're connected. It's not a tree and a human. Everything is mesudar, seder, one thing to the other. We could sit here and talk for a long time about many things. I'm not planning to do that. But I will tell you that everywhere you turn, you will see amazing chuchmah. And by the way, what we're talking about is from the shithiyut of shithiyut, meaning it's the most simple, this is not a deep science class. It's a very simple understanding of things. There's so much more, so much more complications. You look at the spider, how this you know they learn how to weave from the spider. How the spider learned how to weave, we don't know. But the spider has a certain chemical that he produces that once it hits the air, it becomes the hardest fiber in the world. How much could it produce? I saw once they said, I don't know how true this is, but it sounds like it is, that they were trying to figure out how much he could spit out. How much could a spider spit out? How much... <clears throat> how much... Stream, how much web? They were over 400 feet and he was still going. They kept pulling out of his mouth. The amount that he can produce is way beyond his size. I, I can hardly see him. How does that happen? How about birds migrating? How does that work? You know birds can fly for 10 hours at a time. Scientists have seen that birds arrive many times in the same exact spot that's thousands of miles away. The same exact spot the same exact day they track them the year before thousands of miles away they can be from Massachusetts to Florida and they are in the exact same spot how did the birds to do that how do they get to that exact location the birds have tremendous ability to fly I told you 10 hours straight me and you we walk for three minutes we get tired Legit, <laughs> three minutes you're huffing and puffing A bird, 10 hours non-stop flying. How? And guess what? The reason why we get tired is because we breathe oxygen, but after we breathe, we have to breathe out. So we get tired. Short of breath. Uh, But birds, just so happens. Birds, they have lungs just like us. When they breathe, the lungs get the oxygen to fill up the tank. But then there's another 50% that goes to another sac in their body. So while they're breathing out, they're still getting oxygen from the other sac. So they never stop getting oxygen. It keeps them going for a very long time. Their bones are hollow so that they could fly. They're situated in a way where they're able to fly. The human body there's no it's not worth it to give classes on this subject because each thing that you speak about requires its own 20 or 30 hours or more so we're just giving a little thing because next week we have to move on but just a, a quick look at the human body shows something beyond comprehension 60 trillion cells 60 trillion cells inside a human body. That's like 200,000 times the amount of people on earth. That's how many cells each one of us has in their body. And each one of these cells needs its nutrition. It needs what it needs special. And the bloodstream is going around delivering everything to each cell. But what's interesting about the bloodstream is that besides it delivering the right nutrients, by the way, it better be to the right places, if calcium goes to your brain, you're dead. You need calcium by your teeth. You need calcium by your nails. Calcium in the wrong place is no good. The bloodstream is a regular delivery company that goes around all day delivering to each of the trillions of cells to give them each what they need. And by the way, simultaneously, it's picking up garbage. But what's interesting is there's no garbage cans. In the same bloodstream as it's going, it has mixed together waste and nutrients at the same time, and it's delivering and picking up at the same time and making your body and my body tick. Capillaries, tiny blood vessels. There are enough capillaries in your body, in my body, to go around the world two and a half times. Two and a half times, I can take the capillaries just in my body alone, and I can go stretch them out around the world two and a half times. There are enough. There are in my teeth, in your teeth. Each tooth has over 55 miles of canals. 55 miles. That's over 1,700 miles of canals just in your mouth. Never thought it's possible. Where, where, where are they? What does that mean? Where do they go? When they have canal, you know, root canals. You understand that? I got a lot of canals to, to, to chew on. A lot of stuff over there. Each and every item, when we look around the world, everything we see, we see cedar. You thought 15 cards is one trillion trillion? Each thing we spoke about, each cell, each cell is its own building That's more complex than the most difficult building to build in this world. Each cell. There are books and books on each cell. And they're all working together. And they're all working to make the world run mesudar. So, like that young man in China who says, Wait, before I check into the purpose of why I'm here, first let me see. Is my boss someone who does things with purpose? He has wisdom. Well, he does things just without seder. All of a sudden, you come back and you see, wow, this world is very mesudar. It's got a lot of seder. Everything connects. So once you see that, a person has to ask themselves, so what's my purpose? I know what the bee's purpose is. I know what the wood's purpose is. What's my purpose? For sure there's a purpose for me. That's not even a question. The question is, what is it? By the way, the only one that could determine the purpose is the Creator of the world, which we'll discuss in later classes. But today, in summary, we learned that simha can only come from the neshama. The neshama can only fill be filled when it's given things that are advancing the person's purpose. Our job is to figure out what that purpose is. Before we figure out the purpose, we first have to know there is a purpose. This is not a purposeless world. And with Hashem's help, now we're ready to find out what it is that our purpose in life will be. We'll take some time to get there, but we'll build it step by step so we have clarity. Baruch Amen